0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for coming. I'm Greg Sesek from the Pratt Library. Uh, if you would like to receive our Compass newsletter, uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. Uh, our new one has been out of all of three days, and pick up one on your way out. Uh, this uh, talks about library programs and our Writer's Live series. We have about 100 programs each year. A uh, special thank you to the Pratt Contemporaries members tonight and to harris uh, uh, Teeter for providing our our, our refreshments. Um, we have two great authors here tonight. Jessica Blau grew up in the suburbs of Santa Barbara, California. This experience contributed to her second novel, Drinking Closer to Home, which was featured in Target stores as a breakout book and made many best books of the year lists for 2011. An article in Psychology Today about Jessica profiles her experience of growing up in this, let's say, nonconventional family. Jessica's first novel, The Summer of Naked Swim Parties, published by HarperCollins, was picked as the best summer book by The Today Show, The New York Post, and The New York Magazine. San Francisco Chronicle and other newspapers chose it as one of the best books of the year. Jessica's short stories have appeared in numerous magazines and have won or been nominated for many awards, including the Pushcart Prize. Her essays appear in the Huffington Post, Salon, AOL Homepage, The Nervous Breakdown, and Red Room. Jessica came to Baltimore to attend writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University and graduated with a Masters from Johns Hopkins in 1995. She was a visiting assistant professor at Goucher College and taught uh, at Johns Hopkins University. Sarah Pekkanen is an internationally best-selling author of the novels These Girls, Skipping a Beat, and The Opposite of Me. Her new book, The Best of Us, was recently published by Simon & Schuster. Sarah has worked as a reporter, formerly a feature writer for The Baltimore Sun. She is now the stay-at-home mom for three active boys, writing a monthly column for Bethesda Magazine while working on her next novel. The Best of Us is the first book in a three-book deal, with new novels coming out each spring until uh, 2015. The Washington Post wrote about Sarah, that she has a knack for making readers care about her characters, and I think that's very much true, having read her book. Well, let's start off by a question to both of you. I'm always around writers, but I can't write myself. I'm always intrigued by how fiction writers come up with their stories. Would you share your process and some experiences? For instance, where do you write, when, how soon do you share your work, and with whom? Let's start with Sarah.
1: Can you guys hear me? Okay, So, where do I write? I would love to say I go to a pristine cottage by the ocean and I sit in silence for two weeks and wait for my muse, but as you heard, I have three boys. So I actually wrote part of my first book at Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) Um, I was desperate. I I wanted to write. I had written my whole life, uh, most recently as a features reporter for The Sun, had become a stay-at-home mom and just felt this urge to to continue to write. So I had to fit it into my new life. So I had this whole strategy. I would take the boys to Chuck E. Cheese. I would get a huge pile of tokens, put them on the table in front of me, and the deal was they had to come back every time they wanted a token. So they would go away for two minutes, come back, I'd type, I'd do a visual, okay, you're good, keep typing. And as an added bonus, Chuck E. Cheese sells wine. (laughs) Not, (laughs) Not good wine, but... I did have a glass of wine, and that helped the creative process. I'm still writing anywhere and everywhere I can. I'm revising my fifth book right now, and I brought my laptop here tonight. I got here an hour early. To me, that's golden time, an hour in a beautiful, quiet library. You know, I revised a couple of pages. Um, I just fit it in anywhere and everywhere. And for me, that actually helps because I think that writers can be incredibly critical. We write something and there's like a pack of mean high school girls in our head saying, oh, that's like the worst line anybody's ever written. And, you know, you just kind of start to doubt. And it can be paralyzing. You can sort of go, okay, well, I need to go unload the dishwasher. And then, you know, I better check Facebook. And eight hours later, you've lost your writing for the day. And I think knowing that it's not that precious that I'm going to be getting in writing in carpool lines at soccer practice Anywhere and everywhere, in a moving car, if you don't look at the cars racing by, you actually don't get car sick. If I keep my eyes low enough, I've written a lot there. Um, that's kind of my process. I'm sorry it's not more elegant. I hope Jessica has a better <laughs> more elegant story.
2: No, I, I have the same story. So, I, yeah, I have um, kids. I have a dog. I have a house. I work. I teach. I have a husband who doesn't clean up or do dishes or empty the dishwasher. And so I do the exact same thing. I write whenever I can. I go to Queen Nail off York Road and I bring my computer there and I write and get a pedicure at the same time. And I bring my computer, yeah, I bring it everywhere. I usually write in Evergreen Cafe and I meet a bunch of writers there and we sit there and write and we have, uh, you know, we impose silence where everybody has to stop talking and has to write. And so I write there, and tomorrow, because my... Actually, my family's out of town, so I'm home alone right now, so tomorrow there's a bunch of writers coming to my house, and we're writing at my dining room table tomorrow morning. So I do the same thing, and if I have ten minutes, I write. And the people who think, oh, I have no time... You know, if if somebody says I have no time and then you ask them what they saw on television last night, as soon as they say that, you know, it's like if you have time to watch television, you have time to write. And the other thing is they say I have no chunk of time and really I will write in 10-minute increments if that's what it is because also in my house writing is not sacred. So while I'm writing at the dining room table, I'm handed the telephone, I'm asked 50 questions, I'm handed forms to sign, I'm interrupted constantly. So, I have certainly, and I know you have, trained my brain that I can look up and look back down and go right back in it.
0: Jessica, your new book, Wonderbread Summer, your third novel, uh, centers around Allie, a beautiful 20 year old young lady living in Southern California who's gotten herself into a little bit of trouble, 1980s style. Tell us about some of her escapades, her bad decisions, and the internal struggles, her internal struggles, that lead to these choices.
2: She in in the book Allie's in Berkeley and she somewhat accidentally steals a wonder bread bag full of cocaine. And um that actually is based on real life. When I was in Berkeley, somebody ran into my apartment with a wonder a Weber's bread bag full of cocaine, but I don't even know if Weber's bread still exists. So um And so, when I was twenty, and maybe a lot of twenty-year-olds have this, when I was twenty, I was, um, I, you know, I I bordered on incredibly stupid and incredibly smart, and so I was always teetering between dumb decisions and smart decisions, and, and I'm more surprised by the smart decisions I made than the dumb ones. The dumb ones just piled up. So there was that. And also in the book, Allie works in a little clothing boutique that turns out to be a front for a cocaine dealer. And I did learn that the sign language sign for cocaine is this. (laughs) So uh, Allie was working for a cocaine dealer, and that happened to me when I was in Berkeley. I was working in a little boutique, and I realized that it was actually a cocaine dealer. Um, And the other thing that happens in the book is that Allie's working in the store, and the owner exposes his... Penis to her. <laughs> this is the sign for it. She learned and, all the good words. And uh, this beautiful sign woman taught me some words before we came out. And um, and that happened in real life. So essentially, the book is about a girl in a a girl who wants to be good, wants to do good, wants to make the right decisions, but is incredibly vulnerable and naive, which I was.
0: Sarah, your new book, The Best of Us, deals with real life families and centers around the school friends, Allie, Tina, Savannah, and Dwight, and their spouses. Um, I think we all have that couple, friends of ours, who have done incredibly well, better than all of us, and you're sort of slightly jealous. Um, Dwight and Pauline are are that couple. Uh, They invite the rest of the friends to a weekend of luxury. that showcases their bling lifestyle. Tell us what these couples learned about themselves and about each other and their values on this trip.
1: Okay, well the first rule of writing a book, as you know I have a main character in this book named Allie and Jessica's main character is Allie, so if you're going to write a book, put in a character <laughs> named Allie. <laughs> Publishers will not look at you otherwise. Um, so this book is about four couples who kind of reunite uh, for a getaway in Jamaica and um, I told it from the points of view of the four female characters, the four uh, wives in the book. Each one is holding a secret, and their relationships are all different. Some are closer than others. One's kind of new to the group, but it, it really is kind of a story of secrets and how we're holding them close, but we're pushing others away. Most of the secrets come to light during this week um, as a hurricane approaches, so the turmoil inside the house is reflected by the turmoil outside the house, and um, I don't want to say any more in case you want to read the book.
0: Jessica, your Ali is trying to come to terms with relationships in her life and she's seeking love and acceptance. The degree of stability and assurance that she has in her life comes from her dad. Can you tell us about this, uh, her relationship with her parents and her grandmother and her familial makeup? Yeah
2: so it's and I think Sarah will probably agree with this. certain things you put in go in because of something you were thinking of that day or something that happened, so at the time I was reading writing the book, I was reading a lot of Chinese proverbs, and I love Chinese proverbs, and I thought,, oh, how can I put these in this book? And I thought, well, I just have to give her a Chinese grandmother so then she was part Chinese, and also I have a bunch of recessive Chinese traits, so i 'm part Chinese also, and I thought, oh, okay well we 're both Chinese so then um The mother, her mother in the book ran off to be a tambourine girl when she was eight, so left the family to be a tambourine girl. And my best friend in high school and college, her mother left when she was five to be the tambourine girl in a band. And that always struck me for two reasons. First, just to have a mother that leaves is so unsettling. But secondly to be the tambourine girl. Like, I just couldn't get the idea of, like, of all the things you leave for, it's to be the tambourine girl. Because the tambourine girl always seemed like the least important person. It was Laurie in the Partridge family, or maybe, no, maybe it was Tracy in the Partridge family. You know, and so, so that stuck with me, and so then I had to put that in there because I couldn't get that out of my head. And then... Um, the father just kind of developed as, as I went along I just kind of cre- the fam- when I write I don't know what I'm going to do in the end so things happen progressively and in the first draft she wasn't exactly who she was in the second draft she was more of who she was in the third draft she was more of who she was and by the final draft her mother was um, Chinese her mother had a Chinese mother and a Jewish father and her father is African American with a white mother So she's everything, she's Jewish, Chinese, African American, white She's everything, but we all are everything
0: Sarah, New York Times best-selling author Jen Lancaster says about you Sarah Pekkanen proves her inane understanding of women's relationships I just slaughtered that quote You also do a great job of understanding your leading men as well, which I was really impressed by. Uh, The men in your books are not just supporting roles or one dimensional, but they are capable and complex, I think. Tell us a little bit about how you arrive at the psychology of your characters? Because there's a lot going on there.
1: That's a good question. You know, it's funny. um, I had dinner with my publisher uh, about a year or so ago, and she's this lovely, elegant, brilliant woman. And she said, you know what's very interesting, this theme you have running through all of your novels. And I wasn't aware I had a theme running through my book, so I just kind of nodded and said yes. <laughs> she said, you know, like, it's all about the important relationships in a woman's life. Your first book is about sisters. Your second book is about a marriage. The third is about friends. The fourth has a strong motherhood theme. And I sort of thought, first, well, I'm eventually going to run out of relationships, and I'm going to be writing about, like, a woman's relationship with her grocery store cashier and her <laughs> next-door neighbor. Um, but that, to me, was very interesting. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's because um, I don't have a lot of women in my own personal life. Uh, I have two brothers but no sisters. Um, I have three sons, but no daughters so i 've always been around uh, men and have great relationships with my brothers. adore my son um, my sons but um, perhaps in the in writing fiction i 'm exploring what would it be like to have had a sister, What would it be like to, to have these relationships kind of exploring other selves in a way? Um, And in terms of the psychology of men, I guess I I appreciate that. I'm glad you think I I got them, and I think I'm just around them all the time. (laughs) So they've kind of seeped in, yeah. Actually, it's great. I love it. (laughs) Thank you.
0: I've known Jessica for a long time, and I know that many of her stories have um, very thinly veiled true stories (laughs) in them. So, Jessica, tell us about Billy Idol. Is is this a true story?
2: (laughs) <laughs> the reason Greg is asking is because in the book, Allie, the best, a good character name we've established, has sex with Billy Idol. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I would love to say that that part was true, um, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> it was, it was just wishful thinking. Because you can do that in in books that you know, like Sarah's exploring female relationships. I was exploring sex with Billy Idol. <laughs> so <laughs> I think
1: she had more fun than i
0: did <laughs> i'm just wondering from a, a legal standpoint how did how did your publisher deal with a living a living person right and how'd they sort of
2: yeah well i know on? it was hard because in summer of naked swim parties i had jane fonda and tom hayden and my editor said we have to change the names and we changed them and that was my first book so anything she said i did then i was like yeah okay we change it. you know if she'd said we have to anything I would have done. So this is my third book with the same publisher, the same editor. And she said, okay, we have to change Billy Idol's name now. And I said, I don't want to change it. And she said, no, we have to. And I said, Kate, I don't don't want to change it. So she said, okay, I'll send it to legal. So she sent it to HarperCollins Legal Department and we waited for like two months and then we got back this document or question from HarperCollins Legal Department that said, is Billy Idol promoting drug abstinence? So I went online and I researched him and he certainly is not. (laughs) Because... In the book he does some cocaine And so um, he was not So I wrote back, no he is not And they said, okay, it's good to go So the, the only things were We couldn't, they, they said we can't put it in any advertising And it couldn't be on the back cover or front cover But we could keep him, but it, we can't advertise him Yeah, I was happy
0: <laughs> Sarah, my favorite character Was Savannah I want to know how the character was born. Was she a person or a composite? I think there's some Samantha from Sex and the City in Savannah.
1: Savannah was fun to write. She was, everybody has a friend like Savannah. She's the one who just says what's ever on her mind, she's got no filter. When she's around, you want to keep your husband or boyfriend a little closer. Make sure you have an eye on them. Savannah is not the most loyal friend. Um, for me, it was, it was fun to slip into her skin because, you know, I tend to be a peacemaker. I'm a middle child. I don't like conflict. And so to get to write from the point of view of this character who just says whatever she's, she wants, just kind of throws bombs into conversations and watches them go off, has no fear of conflict, actually embraces it was just so much fun as a writer, um, so I, I loved writing, Savannah. I'm glad you liked her. Thank you. Thank you.
0: I have a question for um, both of you, actually. Um, what advice would you have for uh, for young writers and for for young readers, how do we get young people to read?
2: For okay. Well, I don't know if everybody agrees with me, but my reading policy is if I don't like it by ba- page 40 or 50 I stop because when you tell yourself you have to finish a book and you don't really like it what you end up doing is not reading. And so I stop. I've read 50 pages of thousands and thousands of books the first 50 pages and I only read if I like it. And I so I would recommend that, but I know there are people who are like once you start you must finish. And as far as writing goes, I think it's interesting that Sarah and I have the same writing method, but I think the key is to teach yourself to just write when you can and to focus and to not create all these barriers. I have a friend who says if he gets interrupted while he's writing, it takes him an hour at least or two hours to get back into it. And I'm thinking, well, what a waste of your life. So I think you need to just train... You need to not create these barriers. It's, they're like almost like superstitions. It's like it isn't... You just do it. You sit down and you do it and you just think about it. So those are my...
1: If we're talking about young like kids, I I would say encourage them to read anything. I mean, the comics just make reading part of their everyday life, whatever they want to read. I always tell my kids when we go into bookstores, I will buy you anything you want in here. No, stay away from those games. No, I'm going to buy you any book you want. Um, You know, take them to libraries. Just do whatever you can to get them reading. and in terms of writing, um, you know, a journal, some kids like that, some don't. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's such an important skill to have no matter what job you eventually get. So, um, journaling works for some kids. Um, for others, I find that our local schools do a really great job of encouraging um, kids to write. Um, and just, you know, taking them to things, I, I've taken my kids to some book signings, so, Wimpy Kid Author came to town, and, you know, I took my kids, and we stood in line for maybe two hours to, you know, get five seconds with the Wimpy Kid author, but they loved it, and maybe that sparked a little bit of something in them, too, so... Oh, and never criticize. When they write, never criticize. Like, it's, it's such a personal thing, and, and we both know, I mean, when you get, you know, that one-star review on Amazon, like, that's the one you kind of remember rather than the five-star review. So, you know, kids are even more sensitive. So um, just be positive. Find something positive in whatever they write and focus on that.
0: Great. When, this is a question to both of you. When is your new book out, and can you give us a hint about what it's going to be about? Because I can't wait...
1: Uh, So I'm doing one a year. They all come out in April or so. And my new one, uh, which is the one I was revising, is um, called Catching Air. That's a working title. It's about sisters-in-law, continuing that women's relationship theme. (laughs) Two women married to brothers who move to Vermont and run a bed and breakfast together. They don't know each other well. And a third woman with mysterious circumstances uh, shows up uh, to work for them. And uh, I'm revising it right now. It's in pretty good shape, I hope. My deadline's August 1st, so um, hopefully you will see it next April. Thank you. Uh,
2: I have three first chapters to three different novels, and I haven't committed to one of them yet, so I don't know.
0: Thank you. Thank you to both. Um, I'd like to open it up to the audience for some questions for Jessica or Sarah.
1: We can also ask each other questions if there are none <laughs> forthcoming, because <laughs> I'm always curious when I meet another author. Um, it's such a solitary profession. It's great to get to pick the brains, and we were we were doing that a little bit. But um, you talk about
0: exploring themes, um, you, know, you know, for example, uh, on, your, on your side, that, uh, you know, relationships you know, female. You, know. but how do you what, what do you do to get inspiration? To actually sit down and take ten minutes of time to write someone, and I go to my office every day, and just to sit down ten minutes it's very different, and so it's almost fascinating to me how someone can actually sit down and and create and be inspired, so I'm just curious about that process. Um,
1: You know, there are a couple different theories, like Stephen King is a big proponent of like muscle memory, of just going to his desk every morning. First thing, And not getting up until he's written one to two thousand words. And he feels like if you're in the situation, it'll kind of tell your brain it's time to write. Um, you know, inspiration, it's I think there's sort of this misconception that only when the writing is flowing well and you're feeling great and you're energized and you're inspired, is it going to be good? Most of us write very ugly first drafts. Like, you would not want to see my first drafts. They're horrible. I hope nobody ever sees them. Um, it's really important just to get something on the page. You can always go back and rework it. But if you're waiting for that moment when it's all going to be perfect and you're in you know, the right frame of mind and it doesn't feel like work, you're not going to have those very often. So think of it like training for a marathon, right? You know, when you imagine writing a book or training for a marathon, you're thinking about the finish line. You're not thinking about what you have to go through every day. And you need to be out there running every day. You're going to get shin splints. There's going to be a truck that comes by and splatters you with mud. It's going to be cold. You're going to be miserable. But you have to keep doing it every day to get to that finish line. It's the same with writing a book.
2: Yeah, yeah I, no, I, I agree. I mean, my thought is I have to just write something and I assume it's going to be total crap. So let's see what the crap word was. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be total shite <laughs> so, so, so my thing is like I just accept that I'm going to create it But once, but Because it's all about revision So once you create your piece of shit <laughs> Then you can make it into something So it's, it's accepting just how stupid and ridiculous we all are And it's just total acceptance It's like I'm just going to write any old thing To have something to make better and so it's, the, it's that same thing, and just doing it when you can.
0: Jessica, when
2: in writing
0: um, uh, *Wonder Bread Summer*, did the um, did it become clear to you that Allie's story had so much in common with Alice in Wonderland? Because um, you know she's down a rabbit hole, she's encountering all these. Uh, weird characters as Alice does. Right. And you clearly you know, made her name Dodson, uh, you know, Dodson, John Dodson, and, right. and so forth. So, yeah. You know, I think maybe there was some backfitting. Yeah. To the Alice story. Yeah.
2: Um, so. It was, it, when I was writing it in the whole first draft, it wasn't clear. And all those strange characters, I, mean, I did live in Berkeley in the 80s, and so a lot of those strange characters are from real life. Like the, um, the pornographer who's a quadriplegic who speaks with a head pointer on a Ouija board is like this, you know, with words on it is a guy I knew in Berkeley who asked me to be in an erotic film with him. He was a film director. So he, that guy in Berkeley made art, and my guy makes porn. The guy in Berkeley got an NEA grant for it and he created art, naked movies with him having sex with people. So I made a pornographer who makes it does it for profit. So I was pulling in all these characters from Berkeley which as somebody here is from California as somebody told me which has all these strange people and and I wrote the story and then when my agent looked at it she said it's Alice in Wonderland and I realized that all these Berkeley people sort of mirrored characters in Alice in Wonderland and they mirrored you know you know the walrus and the cheshire cat and and Allie's mother mirrored the queen of hearts and so they you could look at it and alley and she was already named Allie and she had her lucky rabbit foot and so they, you could look at it and all this stuff was mirroring it and so i think that's the thing that you have to f- have faith in when you're writing i mean he was asking how you write you write this junk but there's always something smarter or at least i think there's there's something in my brain that's way smarter than i am i'm not that smart but something in my brain that's smarter like worms out and does these things so my agent saw it, and then I added the name Dodgson, and then I gave the mother the nickname the Queen of Hearts. You know, so then I dropped stuff in. But it mostly was all there. But I do think there was something working that I was unaware of.
0: Uh, yeah. um, do, you, do you ever consider writing any nonfiction? And if you do, do you have any topics that you've got to go to?
1: Sarah, you want to go? Not right now. At some point, possibly, but um, my book contract is for fiction. Um, I used to write uh, for the Baltimore Sun features, and I wrote narratives, so that was probably as close as I uh, would come. But um, uh, right now, the the kind of reporting it would take and and all of that um, is a little bit kind of outside, I would have to completely shift and I'm, I'm really loving writing novels it's just so much fun, it's like just being on a playground, at least when the, the words are coming smoothly, some days it's, it's pretty bad, but other days it's good so um, so yeah. yeah I mean, I, I write
2: little things you know, because right now this book is out and so I've been asked to write little essays and stuff that I do, but in general I wouldn't want to write nonfiction because I want to write exactly what I want to write the way I want to write it and in nonfiction, you have to stick to the truth and the facts, and I don't, I don't want to deal with those. Like, I want to control it more. How did you both
1: go about finding uh, an editor and then a publisher? How did you get the first book out there? Go ahead. Well, the first step is finding an agent. So, um, so for fiction, you have to finish the book before you find an agent, which completely sucks because it's like, it would be easier to write it if you knew you had an agent interested, right? If you knew there was some promise at the end of this big leap of faith. But so I wrote the book and then I went around to my local bookstore with a pad of paper and a pencil. And I looked for books that were similar to mine in genre and read the acknowledgement section in the acknowledgement. Any author is going to thank his or her agent if the agent did a good job. If they don't thank them, you don't want them, right? So (laughs) so I wrote down names and came home, Googled, found the websites. Agents are not hiding. They are actually very actively looking. Most of them are very actively looking for new talent. And they will tell you, here's my email. Send me your query letter, which is a one-page letter introducing you and your book. Or send me the first chapter. And if you follow those guidelines, um, your query will get read. And that's called going in through the slush pile. Um, but that's how I found my agent. I went in through the slush pile. She called. Um, it was a little bit awkward because um, she, she called and left a message and said, I want to read your, your book. Send me the manuscript. I emailed it. And she called pretty quickly with an offer of representation. But I began to get a little suspicious because it just seemed too easy. And I'm like, you know, maybe she's some scam artist. You know, maybe she's not legitimate. And I decided to check her out. So she has this big client named Karen Slaughter, who is a thriller writer, this big bestseller. So I emailed Karen. I found her website, and I was kind of patting myself on the back, thinking, you know, I'm a former reporter. I know what I'm doing. So I emailed Karen and said, Victoria Sanders um, has expressed interest in representing me. Is she still your agent? Is she a good agent? And like five minutes later, I get back an email from Karen Slaughter. I'm like, oh. So I open it, and it says, this is Victoria Sanders. I, I, I checked Karen's email when she's on European tour <laughs> and I was like I blew it like that's it this, I had this one agent and it's, it's over and then the next line said don't worry I'm checking you out too so okay and so she's, she's still your agent I, I signed with her I fell in love with her went up to New York met yeah. her she's still my agent she's a great friend and we joke about that all the time right yeah
2: um, I met my agent at Sewanee and I didn't realize she was an agent she was just somebody I don't know who asked that. you asked that question somebody I was talking to and then somebody later said that's Gail Hawkman, and she's this agent and I thought oh so when I finished my book I sent it to her and she took it but she sold uh, its actually she Somebody underneath her took it under her guise. Gail is my agent now, but it was um, somebody in her office that took it from her. And that person, Joanne, met my, was talking to my editor at a cocktail party. I've had the same editor for all three books from HarperCollins, and they were at a cocktail party and said, we'd love to do a book together, do a book together, and she sent her my book, and she bought it. But I think the lesson from that is you probably want an agent in New York because it is a schmooze fest, and they do know each other, and the agents do know the editors, and the editors do buy from the agents they know. So I think you do want somebody in who's right in the middle of it all.
1: Just one other quick thing to add: um, I know that you know before I met my editor and agent, I assumed that. They spent their whole day sitting around reading, and like that, that was all they did, really. Maybe they'd take some phone calls or whatever, but that they were always looking for books. Editors don't have any time to do that. They are in meetings all day long, and so my editor only reads at night um, or on the weekend, so she is more ruthless than you. She doesn't give it 50 pages. She gives it five, and if it pulls her away from her kids and she keeps reading, she'll make an offer on that book. That's how she knows. But it's it's very interesting because I thought it was a much longer process, and like, you know, an editor would read it and kind of bring it in and say, "I'm thinking about this," and then like everybody else at the publishing house would read it, and they'd have many meetings. And it's very quick. Like my book went out on a Thursday, and we had you know her offer on Monday, and you know signed it on Wednesday or something. Um, And even like huge books, The Art of Racing in the Rain, which was a big Starbucks pick. The agent was telling a story at some uh, conference I went to about how he was on his morning commute on the subway reading the book and thinking, this is a great book. He missed a stop. He knew he wanted the book, signed the writer, and the writer's previous agent had actually said, I'm not going to sell a book from the point of view of a dog, and turned it down this new agent signed the writer, sold it for a million dollars. He sold it for a million dollars? A million dollars. But this is something he's like reading on this, like, you know, imagine like we're talking about distraction and all of that. Like you have to make the decisions so quickly. So you really have to kind of grab them in those first few pages.
0: So once the
2: book has been accepted, how much mm-hmm. editing do they actually do? And what's that process like for you? Is that hard? Do they suggest changes you don't want to make and, you know? Uh, well. For me, I mean, it was different. I had the same editor with all three books, and each book it was different what we did and what we did. Um, She, no matter what she suggests, she always puts this little line, and I always joke it's a key on her computer that she just hits, and the line is always. But in the end, it's your book with your name on it, so whatever you want is fine by me. So it's always my choice, and she just makes suggestions. She never makes suggestions of what to write. She'll make a suggestion of something like this chapter doesn't feel authentic. You know, so then you have to think in those terms. Okay, why isn't this chapter authentic? In the Wonder Bread Summer, after she, after they bought it, and we were, she looked at, you know, she's looking at it again. She said, "I think the last three chapters don't work. Just think about it." And I thought about it for a couple of days, and I looked at, it, and I thought she's right, and we cut the last three chapters. And I wrote the last three chapters, sort of really at the very end, right before we had to turn it in. Um, so that was a major one. In Summer of Naked Swim Parties, we, it was more like, just. Little things, you know. So it depends on the book.
1: Yeah, um, every book is different. I've asked my editor about the process uh, because every book needs some revision, and she said that if she knows how to fix the book, she can work with it, she can buy it, but um, there are some books that she just can't quite crack. Um, My books have required different levels of editing from very little, The Best of Us. My new one required very, very little. The one I'm working on now is requiring a more extensive revision. I'm bringing in a whole new character. Um, So it really, it it just, it all depends on the book. I mean, they're like Mm -hmm. kids. Everyone's different. And you have to be, I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, you probably,
2: I'm assuming that you're as open to it as I am. You you have to um, let go in a way. Like I meet people who are like, I'm not changing that. I'm not going to. It's like you know what? What kind of a dumbass? How do you say dumbass? <laughs> okay, what is it? Dumb. Dumb. What kind of dumbass are you? You know, I mean, it's like who doesn't want to get there? But you know, it's like you you want to you create this thing and you want it to be seen. And there are people who know better than you. Just because you thought of it doesn't mean you know better. Just it just means you thought of it. And there are outside points of view that are better. There are also outside points of view that are worse, so do not listen to everybody and don't show it to people who are competitive with you or jealous with, of you or want to tear you down or make you feel bad about yourself. But your editor is always looking out for your best interest.
0: Would you all tell me who your favorite authors were when you were kids and who your favorite authors are?
1: Hey. You want to go? I mean, I love the Nancy Drew books. I would go hide in the treehouse in my backyard and just devour those. I still have basically every single um, copy. And actually, it was kind of neat because my um, my niece came over recently, and uh, she's you know eight or nine, and I she was looking through my Nancy Drew books, and a letter fell out that I had written on Raggedy and Stationery oh, when I was about 10 to an editor in New York saying, like, you know, I've sent you my book, Miscellaneous Tales and Poems, and I haven't heard back. I'd really like to know if you're going to publish it. <laughs> and so now that letter is like I, I carried it to New York for my first meeting with my agent. It's like my good luck charm. Um, so those, those books I love. Now, I mean, I, I cannot name you know, one or two or ten authors. I mean, I just, there are far too many, and I fall in love with new books and new authors all the time. So um, I'm reading David Sedaris's new book right now, loving it, um, as I do everything he writes. Um, Yeah.
2: Uh, When I was a kid, I read, I love Laura Ingalls Wilder, and I read all those books straight through, and I love The Little Princess, and yeah, I read those, and Charlotte's Web, and I loved Roald Dahl, and James and the Giant Peach, and all those kind of things, and now um, I am the same way, I read everything, I read David Sedaris's book last week, and it was great, and I read everything, I read, his, I read everything but fantasy, I read historical fiction, I read, oh, I just opened up this star, what is it, Stars, Gaze, Green, what's this big book that's out right Fault, Fault, in Fault in Our Stories. My daughter read it and loved it. And so I thought, okay, so I started that this morning. I'm usually reading two books or three books at a time. Um, and I love everything. Um, there's so many great writers, and yeah, there's, there's, there are too many to name. And, the, you know, the dead, the alive, uh, you know, they're all great. And there's bad ones too, but I wouldn't name them. <laughs> And in addition to Raoul Dahl's children's stories, you probably like his adult stuff, too. Yeah, I read his short stories. They're great. Yeah. Great. Okay. yeah. I, um, I've i edited some books for friends. One was published, one's in the process being. I'm the consummate editor. I can't seem to start myself. But if someone starts, I'm able to tell. Do you, do you think there's an ability for someone who loves editing to switch and actually write? Well, I don't know. I mean, my daughter is an incredible reader editor and she's a horrible writer. I, like I look at her and I just can't believe what comes out of her. But you know, but there's a bunch of editors at HarperCollins who have books. Like I think um I mean, I can't think of them the most but there's a couple of them who do have write books there.
1: I don't know, you probably know some too. I, yeah, um, I mean, you're editing, so you know, you're immersing yourself in that world. Are you doing it for friends like uh, is this something you're doing as a profession or you're doing it as a favor? So you're clearly like tiptoeing around that world, you know? So I would just think like, what's holding you back? Is it, are you nervous? Like I, I'm getting to the psychology here, but like clearly it's something you're interested in and um, you want to take the leap. So just think, you know, you have to throw down that ugly first draft, then you can edit it like crazy. Then you can have fun, you know? And for me, revising is the most fun. I love having written something and getting to play with it and, and change it and cut and, trim and like it's like a patchwork quilt you know just pulling things out um but um i would never you know never say never um if you're interested in it who knows when you might write your book um but don't put it off too long just you know don't let that fear hold you back just say a page a day you will have a book in a year
2: i'm going to jump on her psychoanalysis here (laughs) and guess that your editing is a way to avoid writing the book you want to write yeah Right, but you're like, oh, but for your free time you're going to edit instead of serving yourself, which would be your book. So I say, go write the book. I can avoid the couch sessions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: We have time for one more question. Uh, Do you get any other celebrities that read really- these read other books as well as, well as on Deadpool or Billy Idol
2: or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Hornby if you great... Yeah, Nick, Nick Hornby gave me... I got a note from my publicist. I was in a Starbucks and I got a note from my publicist said, you just got a love letter from Nick Hornby. And then he attached this review that was so unbelievably great that I, I almost could have cried. And then he wrote me a personal fan letter afterwards that he signed your fan. And that was just like... Yeah, so he's one of my favorite writers right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is definitely one of my favorite writers <laughs> he's at this m- time. Yeah, <laughs> how do we sound, Nick Hornby? You got to spell that one out. <laughs> yeah, no, no, can tell them about Eggers, not- Oh, so I, so I just came from book tour, and, and um, so I've been city to city everywhere. And Sarah and I were talking how sometimes you go and there's three people, and sometimes you go and there's a hundred and three people, and you 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 just eliminate your ego and you just can't care. It's like whatever you know. You're happier when there's more, but and I actually always feel kind of guilty that my publisher sent me out there and is paying for the hotel and the food when there's like three people. You know, but so you just you accept it. You accept it. So I went to um, a reading in the Bay Area and uh, in Marin, and uh, and there was like not very many people. And I looked around, and I thought, oh, this is not. This is not a good reading. And then the bookstore owner, and she said, oh, Dave Eggers came in today and said he's coming back for your reading. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, he, said, he doesn't come to any readings, and he's coming for you. And then, sure enough, he showed up early so we could talk. And so there were only maybe eight or ten people there. But in my head, I thought, well, he counts as 50. <laughs> so so I'm counting that as Six a... Of a lot, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's like 50. So that was like a 60-person reading, even though there were eight...
1: Okay, well, So in the past month, um, I, I've had two interesting people comment on my books. One is one of the bachelorettes. It's not quite as glam as yours. One of the bachelorettes, Ashley Spivey, started tweeting about my book. Oh, my God. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, who is this woman? And then I see she's got, like, you know, 80,000 followers on Twitter. Oh, I'll retweet it. That's she, great. So, so she... Um, we've been communicating on Twitter, but oh. last uh, last Monday I was running errands and I was in an elevator and a friend called and she's like, Hoda's holding up your book on the Today Show. Oh. And I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm like, I think you've got my book confused with somebody else's because surely they would have given you. us a little warning, right? They would have told the publisher. And um, I called my editor and she's like... You know, I haven't heard anything about it. Let's see. Nobody at my agent's office, nobody knew. So it wasn't until I got home and checked my Facebook page that I actually learned Hoda oh, had that held is up my book. So, great. so that was kind of exciting. So picked great. it as her favorite thing or something.
2: Okay, wait, I have one more thing to say. So, wait, I'm going to retweet your Ashley. And I watched that. I watched The Bachelor. I'm going to admit it right here. And I watched that season of Bachelorette. Ashley's a little. Brad Womack? Yeah, yeah, I watched that You know, I have Singapore. to Yeah, I mean, talk about psychoanalysis You just watch them and you can figure out the whole world So um, so I watched that But I'm definitely retweeting that But yesterday, or the day before I'm losing track of my days, Judy Bloom tweeted about my book And I was in a cab And it popped up, and I screamed. I screamed, and I had to explain to this wonderful cabbie who's not American-born, who had no idea why I was screaming or who Judy Bloom was, why I was screaming. But it was—it was a great. It felt great. So it is. It's nice to get these
0: surprises.
2: Yeah, you you think you shouldn't be happy, but they make you happier than anything. It's like
0: yeah. Well, thank you very much to both of you.
1: Thank
2: you, Greg.